Hello, and welcome to Political Traction. Last week, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau assembled Canada's premiers to unveil $46 billion of new healthcare funding over the next 10 years. But after months of speculation and expectations set that Canada's healthcare system needs innovative solutions, provinces and industry experts say the amount offered by Ottawa is only enough for a Band-Aid, not a cure. Today on Political Traction, I'm joined by Kevin Smith, President and CEO of University Health Network, Canada's largest academic health sciences centre based in Toronto. I spoke with Kevin about Ottawa's offer and challenges faced by our healthcare system. This is Political Traction. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure to be with you, Adam. I want to start by asking you something I'm sure you get asked a lot. Um, like so many of us, I've carried this anxiety around for months that if I or somebody in my family got sick, I don't know how quickly they would receive care. Now, I'm sure some of that comes from the media, some of that comes from personal anecdotes, but what is the state of our healthcare system today? Yeah, we have a we have an excellent healthcare system. It is like all systems around the world showing significant stress and strain. And unquestionably, um, most roads lead to health human resource shortages. But people are getting excellent care every day in the hundreds of thousands of visits across our country or in our in our respective province and doing doing really well in terms of catching up like people are working really hard. The standard of care is excellent. And I would say if you're really sick, the system responds exceedingly well. If you're if you have a chronic disease or if you have, you know, some early symptoms or some things that could be deferred, that's where we're really seeing a dissatisfaction with the system. And of course, we have to be mindful that when you do have an early phase disease, it does progress. So people are worried about, you know, I don't want to wait until I'm really sick. I want intervention early. Uh, and then add to that wait times in places like emergency rooms or to see their family physician or nurse practitioner. I think we have very, very frustrated consumers and frankly, equally frustrated providers. And we can't get on a plane, Adam, and go anywhere in the world today where a similar story wouldn't be told. Um, you know, obviously, Canada has some unique challenges, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But, um, you know, if you're a patient today in Canada getting healthcare services, they'll be they'll be excellent. Uh, the challenge may well be that some of the wait times and some of the delays in getting to care and things like diagnostics to help manage that care are beyond what most of us would find acceptable. A lot of the conversation around healthcare and healthcare delivery has been around the need for innovation. And in the words of our prime minister, a lot of people made uh, made note of this, one area of innovation has been Doug Ford's plan to expand the private delivery of certain procedures. It's whipped up a lot of dust and a lot of uh, political opposition uh, from the, 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 you know, the parties and constituencies that you would expect. But is this in your mind, what do you make of this? Is this a radical change that's being proposed or is it an expansion of existing policy? It's certainly not a radical change for Canada. It's an expansion for Ontario. But, you know, I went back and looked at the um, actual release quite, uh, quite deeply. And nowhere in it does it say this is a private sector endeavor. 
it actually says we're willing to experiment with models and they could be models that involve or are submitted by or expressions of interest expressed by not-for-profit public or private sector and just to identify that there are almost i think uh, 900 independent health facilities in ontario now uh, only about 25 of those do things like cataracts and endoscopy, more medically invasive procedures or, or surgeries. This, in the first year, will simply expand a model that we know works well, the, the expansion of cataract procedures. The devil is always in the detail, so we'll be looking at what's the price point. Who's the, how do you make sure that you don't bleed healthcare resources away from acute care hospitals? into these environments and then leave the sickest patients behind? How do you make sure that the, um, the community-based uh, remuneration isn't higher, disadvantaging those who, who choose to provide and we need to provide care to the sickest patients in hospitals and our, our tertiary care facilities? But in the first year, I really see this as simply an expansion of a model that's always worked, or we've proven to work at, at UHN. We work with a group at Kensington Eye Institute and we've put in place guardrails, which I'm happy to talk about, that prevent the unintended consequences of, of privatization. Um, you know, we've had private capital involved in the public healthcare system for decades. You know, many of our buildings have mortgages on them and capital is renewed through bank loans or other relationships. Um, so it isn't new to see financing. I think the new piece of this is will we move into the clinical endeavor or will we say let's draw a little bit of a of a semi-permeable membrane between the two the capital and business functions the building the equipment cleaning um maintenance food service if you require it we're going to deal with that just like we do today and what we'd call public-private partnerships through um which have been many hospitals have been built using under every government of every stripe uh, in every province or um, would we then also include in that a clinical care experience? That would be new. But uh, again, my anticipation is that government will wish to put in place and should put in place a what I'll call expert panel that says, government, explain to us what you're trying to achieve. I think they're trying to achieve better access with high quality, shorter wait times at a fixed price point. And if that's the case, I think an expert panel can come back and say, here's what we can do to prevent the unintended consequences, which we can talk about what those might be. Lastly, Adam, I'd say the um, unfortunate uh, view of, of any involvement of the private sector, and remember, about 30% of our broader healthcare system is delivered by the private sector. Um, mm -hmm. uh, when that occurs, we often look at the United States and look for yeah. some of the worst challenges. I'd encourage us to look to the Scandinavian countries and Western Europe if we're going to go a little further in exploring a public-private mix. Um, and in doing so, the key to me is the preservation of universal access regardless of a patient's economic circumstance. No Canadian that I know says uh, people who are of less advantage means than you or I should get a lower standard of care. And if we can deliver that and the private sector has something to offer 
then we should explore it and we should evaluate it independently and dispassionately. Um, that's what academic hospitals are here to do or academic health science centers. And I think we now have the opportunity prospectively to work with government to design an evaluation that talks about how has this made things better, not actually made an already complicated system more complex and possibly um, more uh, poorly funded in a way that doesn't result in the outcomes we're all hoping for. One thing I wish I had an answer to, and you you get close to this, is, is how how is it possible that Canadians can be so proud of something like our healthcare system, and yet so misinformed about it. It seems like your average Canadian sometimes, if you listen to the CBC, thinks that every doctor, nurse, technologist, hospital administrator in Canada is a is a government employee. If we yeah, want to have I... a yeah, like if we want to have an honest policy debate, do we need to raise that education level? You know, I think we do, but I'll I'll liken it to the courts. You know, I, I don't think most Canadians actually understand the legal system at its granular level. How do the courts work? What's the provincial court versus the appeal court? What are the provincial powers versus the federal powers? So I, I don't actually know that every Canadian wants to or cares about that. I, I think what every Canadian wants is to know I have a highly responsive healthcare system that's there when I need it, that will respond to my, my and my loved one's needs effectively, compassionately, rapidly, and with the best standard of care in the world. Equally, I think now, Canadians also know the best outcome for a patient is also defined by a great work experience for the provider and the team that supports them. And now more than ever, I think we're seeing the challenges of, a, of an unrealistic quality of work life for many providers. And of course, we've just come through a worldwide pandemic. People are tired. People have been, many have been overworked. Uh, obviously, the challenge is a backlog. So I believe that, of course, we should continue to educate the public about what the system actually is structured to do and how it's structured to do that. But I often also think that we, um, our best model for serving Canadians is to provide them an excellent patient experience and for the provider to provide them a the highest quality of work life that they could enjoy anywhere in the world. And frankly, there's nothing stopping Canada from being that place. So I, I absolutely agree. And I think the key to that is is funding. And that's what we're talking about this week with this first minister's meeting. It seems like they're moving towards a deal in which the federal government increases health transfers. Uh, Justin Trudeau has indicated this strategy of signing bilateral agreements with the provinces, but he's also looking at more federalist policies like a national data program, interprovincial licensure, which I know the CMA has been advocating for. Uh, what balance does he need to strike? when he's, you know, he's having these one-on-one -on -one conversations with the premiers, but he also has this larger federalist uh, mandate to, to um, treat, you know, the, to use a pun, to treat the symptoms that all Canadians are feeling. Is there a balancing act that he has to strike? Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a profoundly challenging balancing act. So, you know, hats off to the prime minister. We're at the table. Right. For many years, we've been talking about needing this dialogue and needing to renew the social contract that Canadians and their respective governments have around Medicare 
and, and excellent healthcare delivery. You know, yesterday's release, obviously in reaction, is not yet that transformational investment. You know, as, as I look at the numbers, and I'm not an economist, but as I look at the numbers, it probably translates in an across-the-board increase of about a 2% adjustment. And frankly, that won't meet the inflationary pressures that hospitals and, frankly, Canadians in, in their own private lives are, are facing these days. Um, I'll give you an example. At University Health Network, Canada's largest academic hospital, um, next year, as of April the 1st, which is when our fiscal year begins, just to roll over the activity we do today, based on inflationary pressures, anticipated labor increases either by arbitration or negotiation, we'll need an additional 100 to $125 million just to keep doing what we're doing. That's not to incent the kind of transformation that I think the Prime Minister and Premiers are talking about. So it's a, it's a big bill. And um, in my view, uh, because I come from an academic setting, I also think we should be using the literature, the, the research to say, well, how does innovation thrive? Innovation is never introduced with maximal efficiency. So if you look at any new, really innovative approach, we overfund innovation to take root, to refine it, to get people interested, to have the extra resources that allow people to study it and understand it deeply and course correct the flawed directions that all innovations sometimes have. And then we burn it in at scale and laterally we begin introducing efficiency. So you will come perhaps to someone like me and say, your colleague is doing that procedure at $150 less than you're doing that procedure once we've gotten a bit addicted to doing the work and enjoy doing the work and frankly like the income of doing the work. Um, and guess what? I'm probably going to say, let me go talk to my colleague. One of the great things about the Canadian system is we actually work well with each other. It's not a competitive advantage. We're not trying to steal people's business. We all have more than enough. And I'm going to figure out how could I do what um, Adam is doing doing at $150 a case less and keep that activity in my organization and for my providers to service their patients. So I, what I worry a bit about is we need, a sadly, a very significant bolus of investment just to keep pace with extraordinary inflation and the um, renewal that's required of our healthcare system. And then we need a significant bolus. And I think that's where the individual provinces and, and um, federal government should negotiate around what's unique for Ontario. It'll be different than what's unique for Nunavut or for Prince Edward Island. That having been said, whatever the outcome of those negotiations, Canadians, I think, are going to say, I don't want a patchwork quilt of medically uh, necessary procedures across this country where one province does it and another doesn't. We actually want to stay consistent with what is medically necessary what's covered and at what rates. So it'll be a very fine balancing act. I'd also, I often try to remind government, um, you don't deliver healthcare just like I don't know how to achieve royal assent of legislation. Please, please, please tell those who deliver healthcare, this is what you want, by when, with how much investment, and don't tie our hands. Let us go away and bring you back solutions with accountability structures that then allow us to say, we will measure our progress 
and we will course correct and undertake prospective rigorous evaluation, which includes the voice of the patient along this journey of transformation. It really fails, in my experience, when government or people who actually aren't close to delivering care put a whole bunch of parameters around what, what clinicians can't do. And then, of course, immediately eradicate the opportunity for true innovation, which is take the blinders off and let us experiment. And, and of course, I think now our experimentation must include, as part of the investigation team, the patient voice. The patient needs to be part of the research team. And many of us are doing that in disease-specific categories already, but I encourage us to do that with this deal as, as it goes forward. It seems like what you're saying is that it, innovation doesn't just happen overnight and it doesn't happen prescriptively. It takes, it takes an investment. And I think you're, what you're saying is it takes an investment larger than what we're seeing right now on the table from this week's announcement to be able to experiment, to be able to muck about and, you know, try to, you know, try to get into the system and, and actually create, create some change. You can't be forward facing or you can't come down and say, uh, this is the innovation. These are the specific things that we're looking for. You can't introduce innovation and maximal efficiency in one step. The, the literature on innovation is clear. It is an evolutionary process that has a, a, nor a storming and norming phase. And, and one needs to overinvest, especially in a transformative agenda. Once you've found the right models of delivery, you can then very much go back and begin introducing efficiency targets. But if you think you're going to introduce wild transformation and innovation to a much better world of delivery for patients and with patients, and do it at the most efficient possible price point to start, that flies in the face of everything we know about innovation in every sector historically. So let's not embark on a journey that we know will fail if we're basically underfunding it, then tying people's hands when it comes to the solutions they wish to try, not building in and funding an evaluation framework, and not having the capacity to fail fast and modify, which we know from the innovation literature is exactly what needs to happen. Um, in the case of healthcare, we have some great examples where innovation can thrive when we put some resources out there. I'll think back to the old days when, when many provinces were focused on wait times. And we put money out and said, you know, here are a bunch of areas, hips and knees, cataracts, um, cancer surgeries. We said to the field, go away and bring us innovations as to how you can make these wait lists shorter. And I'll just pick on Ontario. Ontario went from worst in Canada to first in Canada. We spent a lot of money, of course. But in doing that, we also then started refining the price point of each procedure and said, well, you know, now that we've got a really good process to expand how quickly we can serve patients who need cataract care, let's look at who's got the best price in that structure. And if, if Adam can deliver it at that price point, Kevin, can you? And if you can, should I move the work to Adam? That's a later phase of innovation than believing, you know, what the lowest price point in the world for a cataract is X. That's how we'll start trying to innovate. That won't work. We absolutely have to invest, over-invest from an efficiency perspective to create innovation 
and we have to invest in the research agenda. And if I'm we're disappointed about anything in yesterday's announcement, it's that we didn't talk about research right next to the transformation of the clinical delivery system. Canada's falling deeply behind. So the National Institutes of Health, per, we have about a 66-fold difference in investment in the United States versus Canada. Based on our population, we should have a 10-fold difference. So if we want this transformative system, we also have to look not only at the direct delivery in incentives and the direct delivery investment, but tie to that the research and evaluation investment, because clearly we want a standard of care across this country that all Canadians are entitled to. A lot of the innovation that people have been asking for, pan-Canadian licensure, efficiency, efficiencies in delivery, virtual care, uh, a national health data program, it seems odd to me that the rhetoric and previewing of this week's meeting and this week's release from the government allowed all of these ideas to permeate and then land with a budget that seems to tie us to the status quo. Is that is that is that a... And I know that you, you know, you have you're, you're a key stakeholder and you have your own stakeholders, so you can't be too political <laughs> in your step. But is that how you would have handled that? Um, you know what? I don't have the political lens. I don't sit in those chairs. I, I live by a motto that says where you sit has everything to do with where you stand. And I think in this accord, if you look at what's occurring, that's exactly what what we're seeing. Um. It, it isn't, of course, exactly the way I would handle it, but I only have the lens of, you know, how will we deliver better health care for Canadians? I appreciate the premiers and the prime minister have the entire governance of, of the nation, as well as the challenges of our economy and the tax base, so many other factors. But, you know, I, I do think that, unfortunately, um, the model that's there, I would say the things we're talking about moving to are hardly transformational right? A better data system. Shame on us for not having that. And, you know, I, I applaud the Prime Minister for saying there are deliverables with these money. Uh, whatever monies I receive, be it from the provincial government, a donor, a, um, you know, an, a, a third party research account, I expect there to be strings tied, tied to it, right? So I have no problem with the federal government saying these are the strings. But I actually think most of the metrics that we're looking at are the bar is too low for me. So having sharing data, well, you know, that's that's a no brainer to me. Create the legislative frameworks so that we can meaningfully share data and let research and evaluation thrive. Of course, move to national licensure. Um, those are pretty low bars. I'm looking for a transformative agenda. And transformation for me means. You know, the, the, the holy trinity of healthcare, I've been talking about that in the media this week, it's quality, access, and cost. And so I'm looking to say, can we tell Canadians that they have the highest quality of care? And, and quality needs to include, include the patient and care provider experience. Can we say that Canadians have among the best access to care in the world? We know in primary care at the moment, as an example, that is not the case and, and many other endeavors. And do we know that we have a, a fair and efficient tax, uh, sorry, a cost structure that actually um, allows us to be competitive with other G15 nations? If that's true, then I think we are moving absolutely in the right direction. 
I worry that the markers are process rather than outcome in this accord. I want to know more Canadians are getting served. I want to know more Canadians are satisfied with the speed and quality with which they're getting served. I want to know that disadvantaged or marginalized populations who are most um, at risk for poor health are being uh, adequately and appropriately served. Um, and I want to know that my tax dollars are being spent in a way that we can stand up and say, we are an efficient system uh, and we are spending comparably to other jurisdictions. You know, I've, I've had the privilege of being party to a provincial um, negotiation with the uh, Physician Association in the province of Ontario. And, you know, I think there, the debate occasionally arises. Do you know that Canadian doctors are among the best paid doctors in the world? To which I say, I hope that's true. I just want to make sure that they're among the best performing doctors in the world. And performance needs to be defined by quality of care, quality of caring, access, um, the patient experience, the, the caregiver experience, you know, the list goes on. So for me, um, I think it's, it's an accountability structure that is really going to shift to are we getting the return on investment that Canadians deserve with their tax dollars and their philanthropic dollars? Don't forget the largest section of philanthropy in this country is, is healthcare and higher education. So really important. And I can tell you when I deal with donors, large and small, it's no longer a donation. It's an investment. They want to talk about how will the system be different? And whenever I had a conversation just today by email, I'll, I'll call the patient later, but with a patient at our hospital who did not have an acceptable experience. And, you know, I want to understand what was it about that care experience that we could have made better? And is it possible? Are, my, are the patient's expectations realistic as well? But, you know, why, and were my colleagues so busy today that if we didn't hit the mark on that patient's needs, it was it all again drives back to health human resources. I think we should also talk about, you know, the model that says every, the people who have done the work in the past will be the people with the same training that will be do the work in the future. And I just don't think that's true. I don't think that's realistic. I think it's it was an interesting news bite today, maybe overshadowed or this it was an interesting news bite this week, perhaps overshadowed by the first minister's meeting. Uh, a sorry bit of news that maybe showed where we are and, and uh, what, what what our progress is. When it was announced that uh, uh, the provincial government of Ontario was going to move to uh, get fax machines out of the medical system, uh, and that's that's always something that, that that I point to when I say, you know, like. Yes, we can shoot the moon for these grand innovations, but there's a lot of there's a lot of 20th century work that we can also do as well. Absolutely. But, you know, I think the other piece of this, just to be fair to government for a moment, is um, government doesn't operate the healthcare system. So if hospitals and physicians and other providers and laboratory companies, like if we decided a long time ago, we will not use the fax machine. It isn't government. Like, I, I think in these discussions, we have to go back to be careful what you're asking of government. That isn't what they're there for. It isn't what they're good at. And it isn't what they should do. Like, to be honest, 
I don't want Premier Ford focused on whether or not we should be using fax machines in the healthcare system in Ontario. I know we shouldn't be using fax machines <laughs> if we want a truly digital. But the, we also have to be accountable as the delivery sector in saying we're going to set some standards, right? And, you know, we can actually say, I'll just be very selfish, at University Health Network, we will not accept a referral by fax, right? If we said that, you know, we do realize that there would be certain patient populations that would be disadvantaged. But, you know, will it take that kind of line in the sand to get some of these things out? Because there's no advantage for the provincial government to let fax machines happen. But man, I do not want them focused <laughs> on such a low bar. I want right. them focused on that big, the big issue of access to high quality care measurement to ensure that Canadians uh, across the provinces and within the within the provinces are getting the same evidence-based high quality care. I want to push and explore the what's full scope of practice for all providers look like. I want to recognize that we can't immigrate or train our way out of the nursing shortage. We need to think about nursing extenders. And you know, all of those things have strong opinions on all sides. But, you know, I also think we want government to push back and say, that's an operational matter. You guys should work that out. That's why we fund you and pay you well. And I want government to do what they do well, which is legislate the framework to deliver high quality care and caring at an efficient level with a good quality of work life. And that's where I think they should stay. So we know that the federal government is going to be bringing, I think, a half a million people to Canada a year. Uh, most of those people are going to be living in cities. And the people who are living in cities right now are getting older. How how are our urban health networks going to meet that challenge to scale up? Yeah, we look ahead, even in the physical plant preparation, based on historical utilization. And I, I realize we're all hoping for transformation, that many of the things we do in hospital or long-term care today will be done in homes tomorrow. But that having been said, there will always be end-of-life care and people with, with acute illnesses throughout our populations. So I think we have to very strongly consider, do we have the right physical and cyber plan for the kind of healthcare system and the population that is, is emerging in Canada? Um, wonderful that we're attracting new um, Canadians. Hopefully, some of those new Canadians, a, whole, a significant proportion, will, will have or be interested in the health profession since we'll also need people to care for them. But we really do need to think about the kind of infrastructure required. And at the moment, we can already look and say as new condos and other buildings are being constructed in urban centers and our emergency rooms are already overwhelmed, how are we going to care for these folks, right? Especially the walk-in patients, the unscheduled patients who require care. And whether that's a, a new social contract with the city, a, a planning framework that considers how when we build and expand housing, we'll adjust the expenditures for healthcare. I think we do have to have a meaningful policy debate about can we keep pace with our needs or we'll always be on our back foot looking to... Um, catch up in a system that will continue to frustrate patients and particularly frustrate providers who right now, I think that's one of my greatest concerns. Too many 
remarkable clinicians and those who support clinicians saying, I don't see a positive light at the end of the tunnel. I'm not sure I should stay in this profession. I'm not sure I should encourage my kids to go into these professions. And nothing could be further from the truth. These are wonderful professions if we give clinicians the tools that they need to be successful and the kind of workload that allows them to practice excellent care. At the moment, it's been meet all comers at a level that none of us would have wished during, during COVID. And now we have a catch-up phase. Add to that immigration, the aging of the population and growth. We need some serious work with our demographic colleagues to really, in a third-party way, evaluate what the future healthcare system size and capacity looks like. And then perhaps an in innovative approach to how will cyber and digital bend that curve, right? What can we do at home? Because I, I don't know about you, Adam, but I know I'm my world future is not institutional healthcare, right? I hope I live the entirety of my life in my home and never require institutional service. And if that's what most of us want, and that's the goal that we have, then I think that's the, the framework that we'll come back and have to look at sizing and scoping around. But uh, you know what, for the very foreseeable future, we're going to need lots of hospitals, lots of long-term care facilities, lots of home care agencies. And uh, I think we should, we should be uh, robust and rapid in getting that appropriate sizing spelled out. Pulling up from healthcare, there are other, what we would call it in, in medicine, social determinants of health that are, as I understand it, have an outsized impact on how hospitals function. Uh, beyond healthcare, number of the issues that people are talking about today in, you know, in, in, in media are issues related to mental health, issues related to substance abuse and housing specifically. And as I understand it, a significant, a not insignificant amount of emergency department visits are related to those social determinants of health as opposed to chronic conditions or trauma conditions that are actually core medical situations. Do you feel do you feel like you have a voice on those issues outside of just how hospitals are administrated and, and how the healthcare system works? Yeah, so uh, absolutely. So go back to Mark Lalonde, right? Like that's a long, long time ago, 50 years ago, when, when the government of Canada first talked about the social determinants of health and the health of the population. And, um, you know, we've talked about it for a long time, particularly in academic circles. But, you know, just in the past five years, University Health Network has said, you know, we need to stop talking about it and do something. So we're the first hospital in the country that said, through our board, we're going to build prescribable housing. And with the federal government, with the provincial government, and with the city government, because I think in days of old, we never really thought about municipal governments as, as key to the health solutions. When it comes to things like public health and ambulances and laboratory testing and so many areas, it is truly the three levels of government more than ever before. So this spring, we'll open the first 50 prescribable housing units at University Health Network. We have about 215, 215 patients who consume 15,000 emergency room visits. That's over wow. almost 70 visits uh, for each patient, right? more than once a week. 
and wow. on average, right? Huge. They're not there because they have an emergency health condition. They're there because they have other needs that are being unmet by a fractured health and social social care system, be that addiction issues, be that um, poverty, be that food security. So that, we're very proud, and our hope is to expand that 50 to tenfold to 500. Um, and I'm sure other other organizations will look at that. In a, in conjunction with that, we're also very excited to say we have a new world of digital health. And colleagues, I'll just pick on one of my remarkable colleagues, uh, Heather Ross at, at University Health Network. Heather, who's a uh, the head of the Division of Cardiology, has developed a uh, technology that allows us to electronically monitor heart failure in patients. And every day, all you need to do is step on a downloadable scale and put on a downloadable blood pressure cuff, which will give you. And she'll be able to tell whether or not your heart failure requires adjustment with your meds. If we can prevent that heart failure exacerbation, we can prevent an emergency room presentation, a possible admission, and with every heart failure exacerbation, the patient leaves somewhat diminished in terms of further heart function. So there are so many of these opportunities, um, but you're absolutely right. If we're going to look at this through the lens of equity and equitable access for marginalized populations, it's going to require us to really work with communities in new and unique ways. And I'm very proud of the work that our social medicine group is doing at UHN, but it is it affects the entire system. When we think about the number of people in ERs, the number of people requiring a, a general internal medicine consultation, the number of people who could, with great family practice or nurse practitioner supports, dramatically improve their health outcome. It's it's astonishing and remarkable, and and it only resonates with everyone, right? So when we talk to wonderful donors like um, La Fondation Emmanuel Gattuso, uh, Emmanuel Gattuso's foundation has made a, a profound $5 million investment in, in getting this to the forefront. So I think there's a huge, huge opportunity for the lens of social justice and equity to be a driver with this accord and with us really saying, let's finally make Canada the best practitioner of population health in the world. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a great pleasure. Political Traction is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. Our show was edited by Holden Wine and produced by Thomas Ashcroft, Matthew Barnes, Jeff Costin, Zeus Eden, and Jenny McElwain. I'm your host, Adam Owen. We'll see you next time.